If you can't see this in the back, I have a red wagon. How many of you guys have ever given a ride to a child or actually ridden in a red wagon as a child? Oh my goodness, it might have been better to say how many have not. That was pretty much everybody. I was actually introduced to this by just uh, by Justin. He didn't actually pull me in the wagon. He suggested I do this with Eliana. Um, from the time that she came home with us. And it has been a fun thing to do with her, just a, a sweet time to get out in the open and to walk around. And I would highly suggest it with your little ones to, to try. Um, but one day as we were uh, trying to relax at the, the end of the day, it was actually Easter Sunday, and we didn't have service that day. We, we, we were free to do whatever we wanted. So Eliana, Eliana and I went for a walk all the way around the outside of this property, uh, on the cross-country trail, over behind the Gilrees and Flintoffs, and then back around. And when we, when we got to this side over here, I noticed the graveyard. And I thought, hmm, it's Easter. Let's talk about this. So I said, Eliana, you see those rocks in that field over there? Yes, Daddy. I said, do you know what those are? Those are graves. Those are the rocks that mark where someone has died, and they have been buried in the ground there. You know, you see the little wheels turning in the little head. And um, I said, you know what we talked about this morning, Ellie? Jesus died. Jesus was buried in a grave. But that grave couldn't hold him. He got up out of that grave. He beat death. And he beat sin. And in her, I, I love it, usually after the preaching time, she wants to get up and do exactly what Daddy did. She raised her little fist in the air. He beat death. He beat sin. Jesus, Jesus is alive. And, and so we continued to walk all the way around the property again, and she's, we're going back and forth. I love those conversations. They're priceless. Um, and when we got all the way back around to the graveyard, she said, Daddy, look, that's where Jesus got up out of the grave. I was like, I was like, oh, man, she didn't quite get it. I said, no, Ellie, those, that's not the actual grave where he is. He's not in that graveyard. He didn't get out of that graveyard. Those people, however, if they trusted in Jesus or if they belonged to Jesus, one day they too will get up out of the grave. And she said, well, where is Jesus? And I said, uh, at the right hand of God. Um, I said, Eliana, Jesus is God. And you know that God is everywhere. Even though we can't see him, he always, you guys know the children's catechism, where is God? He is everywhere. Can you see him? No, but he always sees me. And so she said, Daddy, is, is God in the sky? And I said, yeah, he's in the sky, Eliana. He's, he's everywhere. He's all around us. And I said, Eliana, he's right there in that wagon with you. And as soon as I said that, her eyes just went huge and she gripped the side of the wagon and she was looking around like oh my goodness where is he (laughs) and I say that because all of a sudden this concept of God was was reality in her little eyes she realized could this thing this person that we always talk about as God actually be in the wagon with me the reality of God And if we can actually see, drastically changes who we are and how we act. I'll go around. I don't want to fall on my face. (laughs) And our passage this morning focuses on that, the reality of God. And the challenges given to us, to people. And I I want to split my sermon into two parts from this one one verse. There is the problem... But then there's the potential. And the problem obviously lies in this statement. Without faith, it is impossible 
to please God. It is absolutely not possible to please God without faith. I want you to think about that personally, where you sit today, whatever it is that you think that you need to do or be in order to please God. Impossible. Impossible. Let that word ring in your ears. Now, there's a very big danger in focusing on one verse. Um, If I were just to talk about this verse, take it out of its context, out of this letter, and just share it with someone, the person that is hearing will immediately say, well, I have faith. You have your faith. I have my faith. We're all going to God. All roads lead to Rome kind of thing. That's exactly not what this verse is saying. Another thing is if you get to the end of the verse, it talks about those who seek him will be rewarded. And we all know that there is a, gra- a, a vast number of people who say that they want God so that they can get something out of it. If I seek God, he's somehow obligated to give me what I want. The difficult thing about that is if you continue to read this chapter, it didn't happen in the lives of every other person in this chapter. Um, that's not what this is talking about. It's kind of like, how many of you guys actually know what Burek is? Oh, there was a whole bunch of hands over here. Justin does. Hey, Nicole. (laughs) Burek. Burek is one of the most popular national meals in Bosnia. Burek is an incredible meal. But if I were to come to you and try to explain to you about Burek, and I said flour, 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 flour. I am talking about a part of Burek, but I need to explain to you more about the excessive amounts of oil and the, the philosophy. How do you say that dough again? Uh, the, the really crispy, thin dough. I see, I don't even know how to say it. Um, the butter and the pan and the way it's cooked under coals and the way it melts in your mouth and then it visits you for the rest of the day and, and those kinds of things. The real aspects of what burek is, you have to understand all of that to get that one aspect flower is a piece of that big picture. And it's the same with this one little verse. What this verse is saying is not standalone. It is huge and it affects every single little tiny detail of our lives. From what we do to what we think to what we are as humans, as creatures. So we need a little bit of a handle on the context before, uh, in order to get what, what the author is saying here. And as I highlight the context, sorry, thank you, Justin. (laughs) Um, I want to focus on two things that I noticed this time as I was studying, looking through the book, that I hadn't noticed before. Have you ever noticed, as those who are familiar with the, the letter to the Hebrews, that he never focuses on Abraham or David, these two crucial figures in the history of Israel? He touches on Abraham, but it's to show that Abraham is actually inferior to um, the priesthood in a certain way, into Melchizedek. He focuses on the mediatorial aspect of Israel's history, and he's dealing with the reality of life, the difficulty, the mundane, the suffering, the, the sometimes it just does not seem worth it aspects of what is human life. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor where you stand. So this letter is written to a group of Jewish believers who have trusted in Jesus Christ and for whatever reason, they've come to a crisis point in their faith. 
Life begins to drag on. The price seems to get higher and higher. And these guys have given a lot for the sake of Christ. They've rejoiced when their things were taken away from them because they believe that if you take what I have, that I have a greater inheritance waiting for me. Their trust was in God, but life began to weigh on their faith. Now, because of their background, they come out of a very traditional religious system called Judaism. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to get to know some Orthodox Christians and some um, fundamental Muslims because the way they do religion is every single bit of your life has some kind of ritual or symbolic meaning or something tied into it. And this is what Judaism was. The way that you lived your life made you worthy before God, made you acceptable. Now, the author spills a lot of ink. I got this from J.K. He spills a lot of ink in this book, writing about the mediatorial or intercessory aspects of Israel and their history. He, he talks about the angels. The angels were crucial in God giving revelation about who he was to the people of Israel. Moses and the law. He talks about the priesthood. He talks about the tabernacle and the sacrifices. And he spends chapter after chapter laying out what these things truly are. But Judaism had taken these and twisted them into a lie. That if you do this by doing these things, then you are righteous. Just by the doing. God actually gave all of these things, his word, Moses, uh, the law, all of them, to indicate that we can't. We can't fulfill his law. It's not just that we can't, it's that we don't want to. But in the midst of that, he will provide a way. That idea of mediation, we can't get there. But he is showing some way that one day he will draw that connection. See, that all of those things couldn't actually deal with the problem of sin. And I want you to understand that sin is written into the DNA of our soul. It's this condition of rebellion from the time we are born where we don't want anyone to tell us who we are and what we should be doing. Least of all, God. But the fulfillment of every one of these things, the angels and the, and the revelation of God's word, Jesus is the word of God. Moses and his leading the people in the house, Jesus is over the house. And you keep going and going, Jesus is better. I meant to send that song to you, um, Patrick, but I didn't want to wait till, wait till last minute. It's, it's a great song. Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. It's a person, not a ritual. What all of these could not do, but they were pregnant with promise. Pregnant with what God would one day do. The time would come when the promises would be fulfilled. And as he moves into this 11th chapter where I'm focusing on just one verse, he's demonstrating that there is a relational dynamic to all of these sacraments. There was something that was going on when they did these things. They were trying to approach a being. They were trying to approach a holy God. The pattern from the beginning to the end is that God communicates 
Man makes a choice based on that revelation, and then there are always consequences. Follow that pattern. God is, God says, man chooses to obey or not to obey. That's our convictions, our obedience, and then there are always consequences. Now let's focus on this word faith. That is a tossed around word everywhere that you go. I have faith, you have faith. Um, And remember, we're actually focusing on the problem. Uh, Without whatever this faith is, it is absolutely impossible to please God. And I hope as you sit there today, you long for this faith. You want to know, what is this faith? Because I want to please God. I hope that is the condition of your heart. In verse 1, the author actually fleshes out what the dynamics of, of faith is. I don't think he's actually defining biblical faith per se in verse 1. That actually comes in the rest of the chapter. What I think he's defining is the fundamental aspect of what it means to be human. All men have faith. All men live by convictions. All men have an unseen or unknown aspect of their life and they move forward based on what they want to trust, what they believe. Even an atheist who says there is no God, there is no meaning, there is no life after death, that's, that's faith. That's believing in something that they can't see or prove or touch. There's always an element, okay? So in reality, we're not Christians because we have faith and the rest of the world does not. All of the world has some kind of faith. I like the way Paul Tripp said it. He said, Christians are not different because they live by faith. Christians are different because of the object of their faith. You see, this whole chapter is about God. It's not about people in particular. It's not about faith as in how strong their faith was or how good their life was. This whole chapter is about the personal being God who moved in these people's lives. Here the author is showing how God revealed himself from the beginning to incredibly broken people. If you look at the lives of any of these people, none of them are worthy. Incredibly broken people, and they believed his word and acted on it, regardless of how insane it was, regardless of the price, and that God was pleased. That's why in in 12.1 when it says we have this great cloud of witnesses, so often I thought that those were witnesses watching me run the race of faith. And they were cheering me on like, go Paul, go Paul. That's totally wrong. They are not witnesses of us. They are not witnesses of one another and the great faith that they have. They are witnesses of God, of a living being who moves in history and time. He is a real God. Now, when the author writes this statement, he uses a very specific life to make his argument. And I'm just going to touch on a little bit on the the life of Enoch from the the verse before. And he's very fascinating because there's nothing about him. Excuse me, there's not much about him. And he's a unique story in history. God bent the rules, so to speak, to do something with this man that he, he has not given to every other man, except for Elijah. Let's read, it's, it's actually Genesis 5, 18 through 24. I'll just read a couple of the verses there that, that focus specifically on him. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. 
Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. He walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Now that is even more amplified if you actually read this whole chapter in Genesis. Because in the chapter we're reading right now, it's by faith, by faith, by faith. And he's really hammering out a point. Well, you read this chapter in here, the pattern goes, this guy lived so long, he had this son, he lived this many years, he died. He died. He died. He died. He died. Enoch came along. He did not die. Pregnant with promise. He was 65 years old. I don't know what it was about having Methuselah. Um, But after he was 65, he began to walk with God. And from the letter written by Jude in the New Testament, we know that he was deeply disturbed by the evil of the world around him. So disturbed that he spoke out against it. He was a prophet. He actually spoke of the judgment to come that has not come yet. That's how strong this man's passion for who God truly is and who man truly is. This was Enoch. And what he says in the passage here is, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. How? It doesn't say in there anything in, the, in Genesis passage about faith or pleasing God. And yet, the author in Hebrews sees this somehow. What is it that he says? It says that he walked with God. Now, I don't think I need to do a lot of explanation of what it means to walk with someone. It's basically the pattern of your life. It goes with the idea of of your talk and your walk. We, we, We joke about this with people. You know, he talks big. He'll say that he does this, he does that, and he does this. But just look at his life. Look at his walk, and you'll know who he truly, truly is. That which we confess is not always that which we practice. And it's possible, please hear me, it's possible to pretend that you love God and to do it for so long that you actually become convinced that you love God. But reality, God graciously uses reality to help us or to try to help us to see that. A couple of other examples, I think, that that speak for themselves so that we can understand in their mindset what walk meant. I'll just read these passages to you. Genesis 6, 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Deuteronomy 10, 22 through 23 from the law. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Do you hear this? It's not just a ritual practice. It's a relational aspect of being. 
Joshua 22.5, Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all of your soul. God said it this way in Psalm 81.13, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. This idea of walk, this is what Enoch did. He walked with God. And God liked it so much that he said, I'm going to take you. You will not go through what every other man has to go through. You will not die. Now, why am I pounding this drum, so to speak? I, I believe that moralism is actually a greater temptation for us in our Christian circles than materialism is. This idea that because of my theological set or because of my upbringing or because of fill in the space, somehow I am more, I'm on a higher level than other people. And we can't see it so often, but it comes up in the ways that we interact with other people. See, the question here is not whether or not God exists. He is. He's there. He's in your wagon. The question is, are you walking with him? Other words that God has um, laid on my heart as I've been here and listened to preaching and talking with people, John, the Gospel of John, to abide, to wait, to seek. And the interesting thing is, if you try to look at the negative aspects of these, there is like, there, there's not such a thing as to not seek or not abide. We as humans, we always abide in something. We always seek something. So if we are not seeking God, we are seeking something else in place of Him. It's that same aspect with faith. We all have faith. So here's the problem. We have a need, and we can't meet it. And it's not just a one-time need. I don't think that in this verse he's talking about saving faith, that moment that you are justified before God, that you are freed from the penalty of sin. Although I believe that this is the first step to that. I think he's talking about that ongoing faith in our lives where we battle with the presence of sin in our lives. Excuse me, the power of sin in our lives. I remember once... um, as I was running by the river in Garage Day, uh, this is part of that sharing, <laughs> um, and God had really been working in my life to reveal some blind spots. And one of my besetting sins, if you didn't listen to Howard's message from last Sunday night, please, please download it, get the podcast something. It was excellent. One of my besetting sins is arrogance. Looking above everyone around me and thinking that because of whatever... I am somehow better. I take diversity and the wonderful differences that God makes and I shift them into a ladder of standard. And as I was running by the river, God had revealed this to me. But the problem with that is it's not just a one-time matter of I'm sorry for being arrogant and it's done. I was thinking, Lord, please help me to understand how this looks in my life. And I was realizing how many times I have arguments with people in my mind and I just completely trump them with my knowledge or I help them to see the sin in their life that they're so blind to and and it's just 
Every time I look at someone, every time I meet someone, every time I listen to something, it's always, I need to take care of this because I am. And it was so overwhelming that I had to stop and I had to cry out, Jesus, help me. It was so clear, I need you every moment of my life. Because if it's going to be me, it's not going to be pretty. His word describes us this way. We don't naturally want God. Listen to Psalm 53, 1 through 3. And this is what I've done before. Every time there's a negative example in the Bible, I think of like Philippians 1 where it says that they preach the gospel for selfish gain, those kinds of things. I always think about all those other people. Have you ever thought about the possibility that that may be talking about you? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. It is horrifying in the eyes of God when we choose something besides him. It's rebellion without compare. The genocide, the horror that happened in Bosnia is nothing compared to the heart of man that says, I will not do what you say. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. Is anybody in here exempt from that? No. We're all in that group of people. So get the gist here as we're moving through this verse. It's actually twofold. Unless God is real and unless God is intervenes, unless God moves towards us, we will not seek Him. We don't want Him. Unless He seeks us, we will never have Him. And here's the, the hinge, the glorious hinge in, this, in, in the Scriptures. God demonstrates His love towards us in that while we were yet Sinners, all of that that I just read, all of that horror of the reality of who we are, enemies, rebels, outcasts, untouchables, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be the righteousness of God. Now that's a, a kind of a techno-sounding verse, and I heard someone explain it once that really helped me. Jesus lived an absolutely obedient, perfect life as a man. We never live an obedient, perfect life as men. We deserve death. We deserve to be separated from God forever because of that life. And that's what waits for us the moment we die in and of ourselves. Jesus never deserved to die. But he went to that cross and God treated him on that cross as if he had lived our life. So that he can treat us as if we had lived his. You get that? It's a person who saves us. The gospel is not primarily about behavior modification. It's not about changing what you do, although that will come. That will come. When we finally believe and go on believing, God will actually change what you want. 
I love the way Ravi Zacharias said it. He said, Jesus did not come into the world to make good people better. He came to make dead people live. Now, as that, that's the problem. Let's move to the potential. And here is the potential, the promise, the possibility. Look at the next little piece of this verse. For whoever would draw near. I love that. Whoever. All of us are guilty. But whoever would draw near. And I love this word for the way that they translate it here. That, that would gives that volitional, that, that desire to move towards God. And the, the actual word is just to come close to something. And one of the fun things about learning languages is sometimes they'll have a word that has all kinds of nuances and can say a whole bunch of things that we in English have to... I probably could have said all of what I just said in one word in, in many languages. And this word is one of those. It's actually one word that means it's, it's to approach someone with the expectation of return. It's to associate with someone. Or it's to agree with someone. It's extremely a relational word. Those who would draw near to God. And remember, he is emphasizing the intercession. His desire, his concern for these men is that they would actually turn away from the one thing that makes their relationship with God possible, from the one person. Listen to these verses, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is not just a... I love that, that old hymn that we're just saying. It's not device or creed. My faith is in a living God. I love that... that sorry, this is not in my sermon text, so maybe I shouldn't go down this road, but I have to share it. That studying in the life of David, when he was speaking to the other, other Israelites... His, his passion for the living God. How dare these uncircumcised Philistines mock the armies of the living God? In three ways he emphasized the revelation who God is. How dare these uncircumcised? They don't have the promises of God. Philistines of the armies of God. We have a command to take them out. The living God. Our God is alive. He's not Dagon or someone like that who stands there and we come to. He is alive. And that drove the passion of this teenage boy. That, that when he said the living God, it just, sorry, that it jumped out at me. And Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, skip to 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full Assurance of faith. This is it. This is the promise. It's available to every person right now and every moment of their lives. Regardless of what this life presents is better, Jesus' defeat of sin and death in his resurrection promises more. I am convinced that the sufferings of this world are not compared, are not worthy to be compared to the glory of that is to be revealed to us. The promise is now 
and for eternity if we believe and move on that belief. So Baraka, don't get comfortable. Don't stop seeking what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Where have you given up in life? Your marriage? Your job? Your children? Is there something you can't do and you, you just, you've given up? You can't see how it could possibly change. The clincher is, in that crisis point, you have a choice. God is there with you. And he knows. I've been struck by this when I'm concerned about someone I love for their salvation. I pray so often as if I have to convince God to love that person. He loves them far more than I could ever even imagine. And I'm coming to him to ask him to do what he said he would do. To actually be able to see that, that I'm at that point where I'm done, I can't go any further, that's grace. That's God actually showing you who you are. Admit it and draw near. How do you do this? Look at the text. He gives two simple things. He fills out what he actually said in verse 1 about faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. All men hope in something, they live out their convictions, and they reap the consequences. Put your hope in the God who is. He exists. He has revealed himself. God is not whatever or whoever we want or we may think him to be. Um, usually crisis in life will actually, God will use that to flush out the wrong ideas that we have about him in the way that we respond. Um, I, if a young man's pursuing a young lady, and that young lady is a die-hard Georgia Tech fan. I knew I was going to touch a heartstring here. <laughs> Cecil shaking his head. Die-hard Georgia Tech fan, and she has dark hair and beautiful brown eyes, and that young guy keeps buying tickets for her to go see Georgia games, and he keeps praising her about her blonde hair and blue eyes. What's going to happen? He's not going to get very far <laughs> because he's not going to her in the reality of who she is. And if it's that way with regards to a person, how much more so is it with regards to God? The second element that we see here, he exists. The second is that he rewards those who seek him. Oh, our God is not like Allah. Our God is not sovereign in the sense that he doesn't care, that he's far away and he stiff arms us. Our God wants us to come. Our God gives to those who come. It's promised over and over so follow the argument. You hope in someone. You hope in God and what he says. You believe and move based on what he says. Your convictions. This is where the, the rubber meets the road. This, this step right here. So often we will confess something about God, but we don't actually practice it in our lives. Prayer is one way that that really shows up. How, you deal, how much you do or you don't pray with regards to even the simple things in life. I've got this, God. I don't need to pray. Sometimes I wonder how much he would have in store for us if we just simply gave him the simple things in our life. And finally, when we move on what he says, 
regardless of the insanity or the cost, we will reap the consequences. And sometimes it may seem hard here, but his promises are an eternal inheritance. You let go of whatever it is you're clinging to and all that it promises, and you entrust yourself to a God who gives and knows what is best. I, I, what, sometimes we want to argue with God, and I thought about this because it's reality in my life. How many of you guys have ever had a debate with a three-year-old about what's, what's best for them? Yeah, I see some weary hands going up, actually. They are absolutely convinced that they're right. And in their little minds, they know exactly what they want or what they need. But you as a parent, you know the consequences of what they're going to do. And you, you shouldn't let them go down the reason of their logic. How much more so is the mind of God compared to us with our lives, who we are, where we are, what we do and what we do not have? His word is full of the promises of what he has in store for those who trust him. And I don't have time to even begin to unpack that. And if you question it, please talk to somebody about that. How can this in my life, how can this be good? This is the thing that Vukashin said to us. You talk to a, a Serbian and they're like, yeah, right, God doesn't love me. Look at my life. It's horrible. Where's God? Don't stop there. Move towards him. Ask the questions. Talk to someone. Seek help. Because if you just cry out and you say, I don't, want to, I don't want to go any further, that's all you'll get is your frustration. But if you move to God, he will answer. I promise you that. I think one of our struggles with reward is because we focus on getting something and not someone. What, what God promises to give us ultimately is himself. Now, there are all kinds of blessings once we draw nigh and we have a relationship with him, ways that he gives us peace and joy and even sometimes material blessings in this life. But so often, I, I've seen this with doing humanitarian aid, and it's, it's really harsh when it happens to you. Someone comes to you and wants to act like they're your friend. They want to, they want to be close to you, but really all they want is the aid that you have. And it, it just, I mean, there are some ugly things that come out of your heart when somebody does that to you. And how often do we do this with God? We don't actually want him. We just want what he can give us. The ultimate fulfillment of this promise is God himself. He says, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And God literally pleads with us over and over. Come, come, come. I thought about this. Heaven with all of its glories, all of its blessings, all of the good pleasures and things without God is in essence hell. If you're here today and you think that this is just another religious thing. You think that Jesus and, and all of that is... I, I talked with one guy. He said that religion is just something that powerful people use to control the masses. I have a challenge for you personally. If what I say is true, if what God's word says is... is excuse me. If, what I, if I'm wrong and you're right, we have nothing to lose. Just go ahead. Live your life. Go, go your direction. But if what it says is true, if what the Bible says about the historical person of Jesus Christ and why he died on the cross and why he rose from the dead is true, 
I have everything to gain and you have everything, everything to lose. Please engage people with questions about who Jesus is. Don't just let your arguments be into the air. Take them to someone. Now to wrap this up, which I'm probably already over time. I don't know what I'm supposed to go to. I didn't ask on purpose. Um, <laughs> to wrap this up, um, I just wanted to briefly, like I said, this is, this is a testimony. Um, I wanted to share with you how God uses this verse is like an echo in my heart and my mind. And it's, it comes back to me daily with whatever the struggle may be. I want to briefly share why this verse has been so life-changing for me, for me personally. Last week, Justin and Howard hit on something that I've always struggled with, especially when I went to the mission field. This idea of the, um, one of my friends calls it the missionary mystique. This idea that there are a group of people that are somehow more elite, more qualified, better people because they're missionaries or they're pastors or they're elders or they're whatever the, the role is that you want to lay on it. And, and I believed that. I have a hard time saying that to you out loud. I realize now that that conviction, my conviction, was that I needed to be something special, a.k.a. an elite Christian, in order to succeed at my job. I was all about God's mission, my way, or the way I thought other people wanted me to do it. And that's why I've been so burdened and I'm so grateful that Justin has let me share with you. He, he knows about this struggle in my life. I didn't really warn him that I was going to say this, but <laughs> um, I couldn't see this while I was here at Baraka. I actually believe that God took my family and put us, one of the reasons he took us and put us in Bosnia was to show me the vastness of who he really is and the smallness of who I am. I don't blame it on any other person. I think it was solely his grace to show me these things. And I want to share this with you because I want to plead with you to take inventory of your heart and of your life don't let this just be another sermon that you listen to when you go out and live however you please. Walk however you please. Act like God is not in your wagon. This standard of eliteness I carried around like a sledgehammer. I struggled. Man, I worked hard to make things work. I tried to do exactly what the Bible said in my understanding in order to make people change, in order to plant his church, in order to disciple people. I would, I would try to make fellow believers see what I could see so clearly, and if they didn't see it, push them away. I tried to, oh, sorry. I tried to fix everything, my marriage, my job, my team, other people, the believers, and I got so fed up with me and others, and ultimately, God. I was fed up with me because not even I could keep my own standards. I had no idea I was doing this. I was completely blind to this. Sure, I talk about pride and arrogance and sin and, and these kinds of things, but it was always out there. It was always other people. 
I had no idea until he helped me begin to actually sense the coldness and the frustration in my own heart. How did he do this? Can you guess? His word. It's the very simple aspect, this faith that it's impossible to please God. How do you learn who God is? How do you find out how to pursue him? Romans 10:17 says it very simply. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. And if you have any inclination towards his word, if you want to know who he is, understand something. That's him pursuing you. Ephesians 2:8 For by grace, undeserved kindness, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of the living God. Now, the specific passage that, that struck me as I was reading through the Psalms and trying to meditate and pray on the Psalms and think about them, um, and I was extremely disturbed by verses like Psalm 42.1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. And 84.2, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. I'd done that for a long time, but I didn't really, my soul doesn't pant, long for God, to have that ache after someone that you love, you crave to be with them. Is that, is that the condition of your heart towards God? Suddenly as I was reading those verses, it's like the Holy Spirit turned on a light. I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't have that. I, I, I seldom have this kind of desire for you, God. And you said that if I asked for it, you would give it. So please, do this to me. Now, I want to throw in the middle here. I don't think that I got saved at that point in my life. I I know that I was saved when I was uh, about eight years old. And I could see God working at different points in my life. That the, The emphasis is God working. The problem was that most of my life, I thought I had control of. Now that, what I pray that he would do that, that's, that's a very dangerous thing to pray and it's a very glorious thing to pray. God began to show me how cold my heart truly was towards him. You know how, um, and the way he did this was usually through my interaction with other people. Jesus actually said, by this they will know that you are my disciples. Anybody know? By what? Your love for one another. Not how well you know the scriptures. Not your device or creed like that song, not by your love for one another. First John 4.20, and please don't think that I'm negating truth. First John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It was as if God turned on the lights. And I could really see what I I loved. I loved my reputation. I loved my identity. I was working so hard for other people to say, good job, Paul. It got to a breaking point, as living life like that generally does. So many people who try so hard to be a good Christian and then they just fall away. 
It got to a breaking point for me where I was sitting with Steve in one of the rooms at the Hope Center, and I, and I was sharing with him, confessing things in my heart, and just desperate. And I, I remember saying to him, I said, Steve, I would rather go back to America. I don't care what people think anymore. I would rather flip hamburgers at McDonald's for the rest of my life and be transparent with God and people than to keep up this race. You know what he said to me? He, he was crying. And he said, praise God. I've been praying for this for so long in your life. Kim and I, when you came to our team, we almost turned you away. Not my wife, it was me. Because we could see this, but we couldn't put our finger on it. And so we prayed. God answered their prayer. I didn't stop there. I sought forgiveness. Man, that is rough stuff to begin to really unpack just how much you have hurt people. People you thought you loved. Sought forgiveness from my team, from individuals, from the church there. I was at rock bottom. And um, God didn't stop revealing himself in my life. As I was struggling with these things, he began to reveal himself in amazing ways. I realized that no matter how many verses I memorize or how long my Bible reading may be, if I was not seeking God to help me love my wife in truth, I am failing. I realized that no matter how great my sermon prep, if I get to stand before Baraka and preach, this is my perfect storm, by the way, to stand before you guys. The greatest temptation for me. How clear my arguments correct my teaching if I don't actually love you, I am failing. I realize that no matter how perfect my language, my grasp of culture and history, my skill in apologetics to understand worldviews, if God is not at work through me, I'm just like the imam in the mosque down the road. Do you see your need for God? Do you truly want Him? to change your desires. Everyone in this room has to deal with this verse. You don't have to deal with me. Some of you have to deal with me, sorry. But everybody has to deal with this verse. Without faith, it is impossible, insert your name. It is impossible for Paul to please God. For if Paul wants to draw near to him, he must believe that God exists and that God will reward him for seeking him. The usual thing we do on Sundays is God might move in our hearts. We might think there's something that we need to talk about, but then life just rushes in and we move on. So I want to beg you this morning. I would get on my knees, because I don't care anymore. I would get on my knees and beg you, please, to speak to someone. Seek help. Whatever the issue is in your life, even if you're not sure, if you have this affection for God, you might have grown up in the church as I did, and you just don't know what it means to live a life of faith. Seek help. That's what the church is actually supposed to be for. How do you live your life? Is God actually in your wagon? 
May God bless the preaching of his word.